0: All right. How's everybody doing? Thanks. Well, I wish I didn't bring the water with me. And I also wish this wasn't uh, the first time this had happened, that I turned up at an outdoor event and then it started raining. So uh, I'm happy to be here. Uh, It feels like home. Uh, It's it's, uh, so many people have been so kind. I know there have been people in this church that have read the book, that have fundraised for Charity Water. So I'm just excited to tell you a little more of the story. Hopefully this isn't boring if you read the book, because you get to see a lot of um, the pictures tonight. So see if this is working. Okay, Um, I'm going to start at the beginning. I'm a Philly kid. So I was born in Philadelphia. (laughs) Mom and Dad lived in Society Hill Towers for a couple years, then moved to uh, Marion and Ardmore. Uh, When I turned four, they moved to Morristown, New Jersey to try and get closer to my dad's job. Um, He wanted to take his commute down to 20 minutes and found this uh, drab gray house uh, in the end of a cul-de-sac, moved in in the dead of winter, and the house was advertised as an energy-efficient house, which is great except when your energy-efficient house has a carbon monoxide gas leak. So this is 40 years ago. The detectors that you hopefully have in your home now uh, weren't invented yet. So we move in in the dead of winter. We all start getting these weird symptoms. And on New Year's Day, 1980, my mom walks across the bedroom and she collapses unconscious on the floor. And we take her to the hospital. And after a long series of blood tests, the doctors find massive amounts of carboxyhemoglobin or carbon monoxide in her blood. And my dad had actually called the gas company a couple times just suspecting something was off. And the gas company said, no, no, everything's fine. And he goes down with a uh, plumber friend and he actually finds the heater and rips it out and finds the crack himself. So I watched my mom as a four-year-old go from this vibrant woman. She was a writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer. She would take me everywhere as a kid. And her immune system from this point just was irreparably destroyed. So it just shut down. So she becomes an invalid on the spot. From this point on, everything chemical makes her sick. Uh, Car fumes make her sick, Uh, the ink from books make her sick. All right guys, print would make her sick. Uh, I remember we would have to put books in these cellophane bags after baking them in the oven to try to get the smell of that new print out. And then she would wear this charcoal mask and uh, she at this point had moved to a room that was covered in aluminum foil trying to just keep any smells out. And she would be able to read the book rolled up in a cellophane bag with her mask on and an oxygen tank nearby. So it was a weird, weird existence. Obviously, we went to a bunch of doctors. Nobody had a cure for this because her immune system was just compromised. And the doctors would just say, avoid exposure to all the things that make you sick, which is difficult when everything makes you sick. So she lives in isolation. I get thrust into a caregiver role at a really young age. And my parents had a really deep and authentic Christian faith. Uh, they decided not to sue the gas company, which shocked a lot of their friends. Uh, people believed they would have gotten millions of dollars for just negligence, for a faulty heat exchanger, and they just didn't want to become bitter. So <clears throat> I grew up this good kid, you know, playing piano every Sunday in church. You can see me here uh, with a bowl cut. My parents used a legitimate cereal bowl to cut my hair. <coughs> um, so... You know, that's it until I'm 18. I'm doing the cooking. I'm doing the cleaning. I'm helping mom. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I play piano in church. I'm just that good Christian kid. Um, and then at 18, I completely lose the plot. I mean, I wake up one day, and I think in some ways I felt like my childhood was stolen from me. And it was all taking care of other people. It was all rules. I wanted my life to—I yeah, wanted the freedom that other people had and yeah, I wake up and say, "Now it's my turn. I'm going to explore the opposite of all the things that I've been told I can't do." So I, in an utter act of rebellion, I grow my hair down to my shoulders, I join a rock band. I move to New York City because our band is going to be immediately rich and famous, and we're going to be opening up for you too, in no time, on the road. Uh, that lasted three months, and then the band broke up, because we all hated each other, and we're doing a lot of drugs. And, you know, at 19 years old, I find myself in New York City with no band, uh, but, but still like wanting to really go explore the opposite of my Christian, um, what I thought was a very repressed childhood is probably the word I would have used. So I come across this profession where you can rebel in style as a nightclub promoter. And you can actually get paid amazing money just to party for a living, to fill up nightclubs, with beautiful people. So uh, this became the next 10 years of my life. You know, okay, like the, the DJ going, the, uh, I, you know, the 40 different clubs I worked at over the next uh, 10 years. And I would bring, you know, the beautiful people, we would bring the rich people, we would bring the models and the celebrities, and the clubs would pay us handsomely, uh, because all those people would spend money. So that was the next 10 years, really, from uh, 18 to 28. Um, picking up all the vices that you might imagine would come with the territory. So this would be me early on in the evening, around 10 o'clock. Uh, you can see in this photo what a poser I am. I'm holding out a Rolex watch so that a club photographer I've never met no, you know, is sure to capture my expensive watch in the photo that he's taking of the club. This was at 10 o'clock. This would be around 3 in the morning. And this will be around noon the next day, just pissed off because I can't get to sleep. So two-pack-a-day smoke—I won't make you look at this anymore. <laughs> two-pack-a-day two um, smoking habit, drugs, gambling, uh, cocaine, ecstasy, MDMA, uh, pornography, like strip clubs, everything you can imagine short of heroin, and I'm doing it at this point. And there's this contrast in my life, because my life actually looks amazing. I mean, I'm dating models that are on the cover of fashion magazines. I drive a BMW. I have a Labrador retriever. I have a Grand Piano in my New York City apartment, okay? I mean, what more could you want? Uh, And then I'm doing all these drugs, and I'm just miserable. And this period of of self-loathing really begins. So um, I have this moment... 10 years into it where half my body just goes completely numb and I can't feel half my body inexplicably. So I immediately think I'm dying. I start getting MRIs and going to neuro uh, doctors and, you know, they hook me up to EKGs. They can't find anything wrong with me. And, you know, I'm faced suddenly with my mortality. You know, I've been living like I'm going to live forever. And, you know, I started thinking like, what if I actually had a brain tumor? What if I died next month? Like, do I still believe the heaven and hell stuff? Like, you know, have I turned into an atheist? I mean, I certainly have lived like it for the last 10 years. And I started to really question, you know, where my life was going and just realizing how miserable I was. So I I went on a vacation shortly after this, two months afterwards, to South America, uh, a place called Punta de Lesta. And I was with all the beautiful people and I remember we had rented this huge compound. There were servants waiting on us. There was a yacht associated with the place. Uh, We spent $1,000 on fireworks, you know, New Year's Eve, magnums of Dom Perignon. I mean, this was just the excess of the nightlife. And I just realized that, first of all, not only was I unhappy, most of these people were also unhappy, and there was so much wreckage. You know, there were, there were guys with us with private planes that were dating girls younger than their daughters. And their daughters, of course, didn't even speak to them. And there was so much brokenness, so much wreckage through this pursuit of selfish living. And you know, I, I, I remember, I mean, I was doing a, a lot of drinking and a lot of drugs on this trip, but I would wake up in the morning and I would start reading my Bible and A.W. Tozer, okay? So pretty much the opposite. And, you know, th- something really just starts awakening in me. And I realized that uh, I made a mess of things. And I wanted, you know, I'd, I'd become spiritually bankrupt. I'd become morally bankrupt. I'd become emotionally bankrupt. And I wanted to come home. I mean, I really wanted to try to find my way back. And I realized that if I continued down this path, my life would be meaningless. I mean, my, my tombstone might read, Here lies a man who got a million people drunk. I mean, who wants that on their tombstone? And I, I, again, I remember reading um, in the book of James on this trip. Uh, you know that verse about widows and orphans, and true religion is to look after widows and orphans in their distress, and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Okay, I was over two. I'm in a glorious over two. I had done nothing for the poor in ten years, and not only was I polluted, I polluted others for a living. So I come back to New York City, and I'm, I'm, I'm. You know, I'm disrupted, and uh, it takes me a couple months. There's an incident in nightlife that I read about in the book. It involves a bouncer and a gun and a guy that I fired. And um, I get out of New York for a couple of weeks, and I begin to ask myself the question um, with a little bit of removal, just taking a couple of weeks off from the clubs. I say, what would the opposite of my life look like? Like, if I am this hedonist, degenerate, sycophant scumbag, like, what would it look like to be the opposite of that? And I thought, why don't I tithe one of the 10 years that I've wasted and become a humanitarian? Why don't I go on a humanitarian mission and see if I could be useful to others? So I'll never forget, I was at a dial-up cafe in, uh, cafe in Maine because um, I had just headed north. Um, Bob and I were talking about this. I was listening to a guy named, a Calvary Chapel guy named Chuck Missler who was teaching through the Bible and just kind of trying to find my way back. And I wind up at this internet cafe in, um, in Maine And I start applying to the famous humanitarian organizations that I'd heard of over the past years. So I applied to Compassion International, which I know you support. I complied to World Vision and UNICEF and the Peace Corps and the Red Cross. What do you think happens next? No one will take me, right? I mean, I can hardly blame them. Like my resume reads, has gotten quarter of a million people drunk over 10 years in 40 clubs, so I'm really frustrated because I've left New York. I've kind of made this leap of faith. I sold almost everything I owned. I remember putting up over 1,000 DVDs on eBay. I mean, I took my porn collection and I destroyed it. Like, I was, I was ready and nobody would take me. So finally I got a call from a group called Mercy Ships that had actually rejected my application at first, but then they were about to start a mission and they didn't have a photojournalist. And I actually was qualified. I'd gone to NYU part-time, gotten a, a degree in communications, and I said, look, I'm a great writer. I mean, I wrote for the paper when I was 13 and I've written for the New York Post just for like as a side thing. I'm a pretty good writer and I'm a pretty good photographer. And by the way, I have a, I have a big email list. I have 15,000 people on my club list. So this is the perfect job for me. So they actually take me and they say, okay, well, here's the deal. You have to pay us $500 a month to volunteer and you have to go live in Liberia. Okay, I'm like, well, where's Liberia? Is that a country? (laughs) Like, yes, it's a a country in West Africa. Uh, So everything changes very quickly for me. Um, From getting that call three weeks later, um, I roll into a country. Oh, let's see if this is working. Oh, my clicker stopped working. Oh, there we go. Roll into this country, very small country in West Africa called Liberia that had just come out of a 14-year civil war. And this is the mission that I joined. I went in with 14,000 UN peacekeeping troops. uh, Another bad haircut. And this is the ship that I'm going to be living on, a 522-foot hospital ship full of the best doctors and surgeons from 40 countries who have come on their vacation time to operate for free on the poor. And my job is just to take pictures and write stories of all the amazing work that's happening on the ship. So I remember moving from a couple thousand square feet in New York, my nice loft with my grand piano, to 125 square feet on the ship. The ship was 50 years old. There were cockroaches and mice. This was not a luxury like Caribbean cruise liner. 125 square feet and two roommates that I'd never met. So I immediately feel sorry for myself, and then I get off the ship, and I see extreme poverty for the first time in my life, and I see how people... We're living. So I go all in. Um, I think this is important. So the night before I'm about to join the mission, I go out with a bang, smoke three packs of Marlboro Reds, drink seven or eight beers, and I'm like, I got to just quit. I I have to quit the porn, the gambling, the smoking, the drinking, the drugs, like in one go. I have to go all in, and I have to leave. There was something almost prophetic about leaving all the vice on land and then sailing away to a new continent and a new life. So I I quit everything in one go. Um, People since have told me they remember me turning up on day one smelling like alcohol (laughs) as I surrendered my passport. But anyway, from that point, uh, I I really reformed. So Liberia is a disaster. One doctor for every 50,000 people living in the country. No electricity in the country. No running water in the country. People living in bombed-out houses and apartment buildings without glass like you just saw, and this is what we're going to be doing. We're looking for people with facial deformity, severe facial deformity. So we fly out of the country before the ship comes in and say, hey, if you've got a giant tumor on your face, if you have flesh-eating disease, never even heard of this before, if you were born with a cleft lip or a cleft palate or if you need facial reconstruction, turn up on this day, and our doctors will try to help you. So our first screening, third day I'm in West Africa, the government gives us a soccer stadium at the center of town to triage patients. And I know that we have 1,500 available surgery slots. I remember being so excited, like, are we really going to find 1,500 sick people that meet this criteria? So I get up at 5 in the morning, I put on the hospital scrubs, jump in the convoy of Land Rovers, we start snaking through the town. We get to the stadium, and I take this picture. There's over 5,000 people that came for those 1,500 surgery slots, and they're all lined up in the parking lot waiting for us to let them in and triage. I later learned that many of these people had walked for more than a month, some of them with their children, just in the hopes of seeing a doctor, and we were going to turn over 3,000 people away before it even started. First picture I take, first child I meet, was this 14-year-old boy named Alfred, and this is just a benign tumor It's called an amelioblastoma. It had been growing for four years. Uh, That's his mom uh, to the right. His mom pulls out this photo and says, this was my son four years ago at 10. Completely healthy boy. And then something started growing on his face, and because there was no surgeon to take him to, they took him to witch doctors. And they cut him with sticks and with knives, and they spread chicken blood on the tumor. Obviously, none of this worked, and it grew and it grew and it grew, and four years later... You have a little boy suffocating to death on his own face. So we were able to help. It was benign. Uh, A couple days later, I scrubbed up, and I watched these amazing doctors uh, in an eight-hour procedure remove Alfred's tumor, throw it in the bin. And then a couple weeks later, I got to take him home to his village, and I got to watch him heal and see this life completely transformed, the before and the after, and see his community and his family welcome him back. So this is what my, my life, my job, job that I was paying $500 a month to do, uh, was really like. It was remarkable, but also kind of uh, intense. I mean, I would wake up in the morning, and I would head down to start photographing the patients so close. This was a, a woman named Martha Lean. This tumor had grown slowly for eight years. You can kind of see in the photo at the bottom, there's a towel that she's holding. So she used to cover her face in public because people would stone her when they saw her face. So they thought that she was spiritually cursed. She had done something to offend the gods, and this thing had grown on her face, and, and you know, she should be shooed away by rocks being flung at her. She needed a 40-minute surgery, very simple surgery, just to remove a benign mass. So it was an amazing, amazing place. That first year, I took 50,000 photographs, I documented all 1,500 patients that came through, and I'm blasting my New York City nightclub list with these photos. So you can imagine the response. I mean, some people are like, unsubscribe, unsubscribe, please. You know, I, I thought that Prada party you threw was cool once, but not like the leprosy party. That was the edge case. Most people said, this is amazing. How do we help? How? We didn't know that there were plastic surgeons that were leaving Beverly Hills or New York City or London or Berlin to operate. How do we help pay for surgeries? How do we volunteer like you? So people started to send money, and they started to join the mission on the ship as I was just telling these stories. So year one ended, I went back for the second tour just because I didn't know what was next, and on the second tour, I really got off the ship, and I spent more and more time in the rural communities. And I learned about dirty water, and I learned the dirty water was making so many of these people sick. And as I went into the villages, I would ask, oh, where are you getting your water? And I would see these unthinkable swamps and ponds and rivers. You know, water I wouldn't even let my, my dog drink. And, you know, I would watch children or or teenage girls. I remember this girl, Hawa, just coming out of the bush and drinking this water. It was alive. It was crawling. There were bugs and worms. But this is the only water that she had. She would use this water to wash her face, to to cook with, to wash her clothes. I learned that 50% of the people living in Liberia didn't have clean water. And I also learned that 50% of the disease throughout the developing world was caused by bad water. So I just didn't have to be that smart to get really interested in bad water as the root cause for some of this sickness that we were seeing. And I was very fortunate that the chief medical officer, an amazing guy named Dr. Gary Parker, um, said, Hey, Scott, you, know, you want to make a big impact in the world. If you keep doing this, he said, rather than help us you know, raise money for the next $70 million hospital ship that can do a few thousand surgeries a year, why don't you just go give everybody clean water? And then there won't be the need for 5,000 people to queue outside a stadium. So I became really interested in this idea of, uh, could I do anything about this? And, and why didn't people on earth have clean water? And, and how come more people weren't talking about this if it really was the cause of so much sickness and disease? So I came back to New York City, and uh, if you ran into me 13 years ago, I would have told you, I'm going to bring clean water to everybody on earth. And people would be like, Huh? And I came back, and I was no fun. And I, you know, I remember running around DJ booths showing people these photos of dirty water and getting kicked out of DJ booths. People were like, man, you're killing our buzz. You are no fun anymore. You know, stop it with this Africa stuff. And I'm like, people don't have clean water. We were selling bottles of Voss for $10 in these high-end nightclubs. People wouldn't even open the water. They would just buy 10 bottles, and they'd let it sit there, and they'd drink champagne or vodka instead. So this was going to be my mission, help bring clean water to everybody on earth. Um, I'll talk just a little bit about the problem and then how we've tried to address it. So right now as we sit here, um, as we you know, came in from the rain, 663 million people in the world drank dirty water today. It's about one out of every 10 people alive on the planet. Now it's often tough to connect with statistics like these. So over the last decade, we've really tried to go out and, and meet the people trapped in the water crisis. So this is a little boy named John Bosco, lives in Rwanda. And this is the water that he's known his whole life. You, know, you look at that water, and, I mean, it looks worse than YooHoo or chocolate milk. I mean, it's disgusting. We, would never, we wouldn't want to walk in water like that, let alone drink it. But it's all he's known. Uh, this is a little girl I met in Honduras, just drinking from a river that ran in front of her house. As you imagine, there are a lot of different diseases, 26 different diseases that we can track directly back to water. You've heard of cholera, you've heard of E. coli. Um, you may not have heard of schistosoma, which is just a fancy word for worms. Um, about 100 plus million people right now have worms crawling around in their body because of the bad water that they've had to drink, um, this is what that looks like. So this is a little child that I met in Kenya. And every time she would drink from this bottle, which came from a river, she would vomit on her shirt. You can kind of see it in the photo here. So she would drink and vomit, drink and vomit. I remember taking the water away from her and promising to try to find a solution for her village, a, a sustainable solution. But I actually took this bottle back to New York City and... They didn't ask me about it at customs, so well, i just have some water. gave it to a lab in New York City, and I said, hey, can you put this child's water under a microscope, and can you send me a video? So I did, and this is, oh, oh I think I mixed up the order of it. Now well, the video's not working. It was crawling. It was literally alive with amoebas and with parasites. And we sent them New York City water, and, you know, we got nothing. Um, what you saw there just a minute ago was leeches, a um, huge problem in so many of these communities. The women will pick out the leeches and they'll show us, you know, this is what we could drink inadvertently if we don't strain it. Um, most of the straining just done is women pour the water through cloth. Um, I learned that there was a huge impact of water and education. So one out of every three schools on the planet not only doesn't have clean water, also doesn't have a toilet. So I'm sure there, there's many of you here that are deeply passionate about education that believe that, you know, the way out of extreme poverty is, is education. Imagine sending your teenage daughter to a school with no clean water, no toilet. And this is one of the main reasons why girls will drop out of school. You know, they stay home four or five days every month. They fall behind in their studies, and they're so useful um, to do the cooking and the cleaning and to get the firewood and, most importantly, to get the water. That so We see so many girls in the middle of the day that should be in school just walking in the hot sun with jerry cans, 40 pounds of dirty water on their backs. So there's a huge health connection to water. There's a huge uh, education connection. And really, you know, it's, it's a women and girls issue. You know, I've now been to 69 countries, and I have never seen men get water. I mean, it's just culturally, it's, it, whether I'm in Africa or India or Southeast Asia or Central and South America, it is the women who are out there digging in the sand, you know, like this woman in Kenya, or fighting off crocodiles like these women at the Tana River. Um, these women told me that other people had come here, other, other friends of theirs had come here and been dragged off and never seen again. Uh, You can actually see that brushy structure up there on the left. They built that as a tell, uh, as an early warning system for the crocodile. So if that thing starts moving, then they run back so that a crocodile doesn't come and eat them. So it's a huge, huge problem if you are, if you happen to be one of the 663 million people uh, trapped in this water crisis. Um, The great news, and what has kept me so energized for 13 years, it's, it's actually a fully solvable problem. So, there's not a single person alive that we don't know how to help. There are a lot of other diseases. We don't have a cure for pancreatic cancer. We're looking for vaccines and immunotherapy for, for so many different problems out there. Water's just not like that. We know how to bring clean water to everyone on the planet. We haven't created the will to do it or the awareness to do it, we haven't created the capital to do it, but we know how to do it. So for 13 years, we've taken a very solution agnostic approach. We fund now 11 different technologies across 20 some countries. And um, from digging wells, to drilling wells, to bio sand filters, to carbon UV, ultra filtration, we have a lot of different solutions. Rainwater harvest systems. It's often as simple as drilling a well for 10,000 bucks. And there are a lot of things that cost $10,000, but I would argue, Few as impactful as bringing clean water into a community. Um, What the community doesn't have access to is about a million dollars of equipment. Uh, The drilling rig, the compressors, the support trucks, um, the skilled hydrogeologists who actually know how to find the water and drill and protect the well. And that's what we're able to do is bring those teams in. And when you do, it takes about three days to go from beginning to end, it's one of the most amazing things to see the clean water shoot out of the ground, um, to see the singing and the dancing and, you know, hundreds of people gathered around. This is actually at that school I showed you before that had 2,000 students, uh, never had clean water before. There was so much water in the aquifer underneath this school. Um, it was enough for over 3,000 people. We wound up putting on a whole solar system system and piping the water to the students and to the teachers, to bathrooms, uh, and even to the village. And it's just this amazing kind of picture of heaven when people get clean water. I remember um, one woman told me, she's like, it's falling from the sky. You know, it's, it feels like it's raining what so many of these people had prayed for, for decades and decades. And then some, one day a drilling rig comes in, pops a hole in the ground, and now everybody has clean water. So a lot of different solutions, but um, we, we always know how to get a human being clean water. Um, I'm not sure what's up with the video. This would be a really cool video of water shooting out of the ground. Oh, well, there it is. It just doesn't work for me. So this is a village in Malawi getting water that spent three months building their own road to bring the rig in. cut off. Oops. They were cut off from the, uh, with a big ravine. So every family member sent one person. They all worked for three months, built a road, the rig came in, and that was the moment they got clean water. Um, we, we really believe water changes everything. So we believe water has this transformative effect on human life. Uh, it impacts the health uh, of children, of women, of girls, Um, If you go from drinking a swamp to drinking clean water, so many things in your life uh, improve. It impacts education. So so important for kids uh, who are getting clean water uh, at their schools. I'm so sorry, guys. I'm not getting the clicker. Can you plug me back in, please? Is it battery? Is it? Awesome. This little girl in Cambodia. It was working great. That's a woman in India who got clean water. Okay. Um, So we have so many stories of women starting small businesses, telling us what they've done with the extra time. You know, that's one of the things that surprised me so much is I'm always expecting women to talk about how dirty the water was and how clean it was. But so many of them talk about what they're able to do with six extra hours a day that they're not walking. I mean, imagine... First of all, it's a a seven-day-a-week job. So imagine instantly getting 42 hours back in your day and what you would do with that. And we hear of of women just say, we're better mothers. We get to spend more time with our family. We get to lead our communities forward. We get to lead our families forward. Um, Stories of transformation. This woman named Helen, one of my favorite stories that I write about in the book, she says, um, so we go into her village and we say, Helen, you have clean water. How's your life different? And she says, well, I used to have these two jerry cans, and I would walk, um, actually, to a well. She would walk to a faraway water point, so she would get clean water. But she said I would come home with ten gallons, and after a bunch of trips, and it was never enough water. So I'd make these choices: How do I use the water today? And she had a husband, and she had kids, and she said, you know, there were all these decisions to make: Do I cook? Do I clean? Do I garden? Do I wash my husband's clothes? Do I wash my husband's body? Do I wash my kids' school uniforms? Do I keep my kids clean? And she said, it was never enough. So she said, I always put my family first. That's what Ugandan women do. She said, I never use the water for myself. So she says, once I got water, she said, I finally had enough water for my face and my body and my clothes. And she said, now I feel beautiful. She said, I'm looking so smart. I remember. So, you know... All these things, I mean, come on. To be honest, most of you took water for granted today. You didn't think of it or associate it with your dignity as a human being or your beauty or your cleanliness or your safety. You didn't think about getting attacked by a hyena or a lion as you walked four hours or an alligator or a crocodile. So it's just, it's absolutely transformational when we can do that. Um, The other thing, the last thing I would just say about this issue that's been great, everybody thinks this is a good idea, right? right. I never get booed off a stage. Like, I never go anywhere and have anyone tell me to stop. Like, no, let them die of bad water. You know, the African women deserve to walk six hours. Like, no one says that, right? So regardless of your political views or um, even religious views, I mean, you know, you don't have to believe what I believe or do what I do on a Sunday to stand for this little girl, getting clean water. So it's a terribly unifying issue. We've been able to build a really big tent around this issue and find people who might disagree about social issues or political issues or or have different religious uh, positions or views, but they can agree to agree on clean water. Okay, so I'll talk a little bit about how it started. So, uh, rewinding. Two years in Liberia, come back. Um, unfortunately, I'm broke because I didn't save any money as a nightclub promoter. So I move into my old nightclub... Uh, partner's loft in Soho, and he lets me sleep on his closet floor. So, this is where Charity Water starts. I'm 30 years old. I, it's worse. I find out I'm on $30,000 in debt because he never paid taxes or dissolved our company. So, he was just depositing money into his bank account, spending it, and not paying any taxes. So, now I've got to go and pay his tax debt unwind the company, and then bring clean water to the world, right? This is going to work. So anyway, I'm like, well, I have the idea for Charity Water. Um, I wasn't very creative about the name. So I'm like, it's a charity that helps people get clean water. Um, Let's see how that goes. This was where it all started. So this was the couch in Soho. And he said, this can be your office. I won't charge you any rent. And we just got a, a, a few volunteers to huddle around and scheme how we might build a movement that got people clean water. So as I started talking to people about the mission, bring clean water to everybody on earth, simple mission, thought everybody could agree on that. I realized this wasn't going to be easy because most people don't trust charities. And I realized there was this cynicism and there was this skepticism, this like fatigue of giving to so many causes. Um, I realized there was data behind this. So USA Today polled Americans, found that 42% of Americans said they don't trust charities. Maybe that's what's stopping me from doing my thing. There we go. There we go. 42% of Americans said they don't trust charities. 70% of Americans said they believe charities waste their money. So I'm like, well, this is going to be really hard to build a movement to clean water if so many people don't believe or don't trust. So the bigger vision was really to reinvent charity, to get people re-inspired to, to reimagine maybe how a charity would, would act or, or tell stories or bring people in um, or communicate with its supporters and volunteers and donors. So I had a bunch of big ideas on how to do that. Um, I'm sorry, this is so painful for you. Here was my first idea. Could we find a way to give 100% of all donations directly to... Clean water projects. So every penny that came in would go straight to the field. And people said, well, this is a dumb idea. How would you pay for your overhead? How would you pay for staff or an office? I'm like, I don't know. But I think if we could tell people that every penny they ever gave would go straight to the projects and they would be inspired to keep giving. So I opened up these two separate bank accounts Um, They would be audited separately. All the public's money would go in the water bank account. Somehow I would personally raise money for the overhead in faith and find people who didn't mind coming up in support of the organization. So that was kind of idea number one. Idea number two was we would just prove what we did with people's money. And this felt so simple. If I took $10 or $10,000, we could show people where it went. We could even show the satellite images of each project as we built them around the world. So we said, we're gonna put every water point up on Google Earth, up on Google Maps. We're gonna build the most hyper-transparent charity the world has ever seen before. And then the third thing was I really believed for our work to be culturally appropriate and sustainable, it had to be led by the locals in each of these countries. So no Westerners like me parachuting into Kenya or Zimbabwe or Bangladesh, you know, with a hard hat on trying to drill wells. We would raise the awareness and the money, we'd get people to care, but we would build up teams of local partners. We would increase their capacity. We would help them find more drilling rigs. And the work must be led by the locals. Um, So we put these very three simple things together. Give away 100% of all donations, just tell people the impact of their donations, and then work with a team of local partners. So the only idea I had to get this thing started was to go back in a nightclub and throw myself a birthday party. I knew that I could get people to turn up. I gave them open bar for an hour. I hope you're not too religious about that. So they came in. They got an open bar. Everybody had to pay $20 on the way in. And at the end of the night, there was $15,000 in cash that we'd collected. And instead of putting it in my pocket and going to Vegas like I would used to, took 100% of the money to a refugee camp in northern Uganda. And thanks to these 700 people, we took people from drinking this disgusting water at a pond in the middle of the camp, and we built our first few projects. And then we sent the photos, the GPS coordinates, the satellite images, and video back to the 700 people. And we said, you came, you gave a very little bit of money, and this is what happened on the other side of the world. And people were so blown away that we told them where $20 went. They said, can we give again? Can we, when's the next event? Can we bring our friends? We thought we were really onto something with this idea. We tried to just get people to think differently about water. We did campaigns where, um, you know, we said to people, imagine giving your child death in a baby bottle every day. Well, this is what kills thousands of children every single day. And we got donated media, donated buses, donated taxi tops. Everybody seemed to want to help us tell the story as this crap, uh, this little, you know, scrappy organization in New York City. Um, we tried to just break down where the money went. So we said, look, if you give $10,000 to drill a well in Ethiopia, this is what the money buys. It buys the PVC, it buys the pipes and the parts, and this is the drilling team. If you give $10,000 for a community in Cambodia, it looks completely different. We go and buy all this. So just trying to make it real for people, to bridge the gap of you know, when someone gives, what actually happens. We built a digital-only organization. We're the first charity to use Instagram, first charity to get a million Twitter followers, and always just try to celebrate our community, Uh, the amazing things our volunteers and supporters and and donors were doing around the world and trying to connect them with each other. Um, Then we stumbled upon this really cool idea um, that I know a few people in this church have, have already done. And we said, look, we have birthdays every year. Birthdays are always about us. What if we just said, no more stuff, no more birthday party? and we all donated our birthdays for clean water. And I thought the sticky marketing idea would be to get people to ask for their age in dollar donations. So I was turning 32, and I said, donate $32 for my 32nd birthday. 100% of the money will go. We'll show you every project that's built. And I wasn't sure if it would work. And to my surprise, it just started spreading and spreading and spreading. I raised like $60,000 for my birthday. So then this 7-year-old kid in Austin, Texas, hears about the idea. And he starts knocking on doors, asking for $7 donations. I'm not going to lie. He lives in a nice neighborhood. Raised $20,000, okay? Max Schmidhauser. So this idea starts taking off. Tony Hawk donates his birthday. Jack Dorsey donates three of his birthdays. Uh, the founder of Twitter and Square. Will and Jada Smith give up their birthdays. Even better, after raising over $200,000, they come with me to see the impact in the people that they have given clean water to. So this, just, this idea just takes off organically. People start calling us, giving up their birthdays. So it was cool to work with, you know, influential people. The, the, the heart and soul, of the movement, what gave us a lot more joy was six-year-old kids in New York City um, or 16-year-olds like Maggie or uh, one of my favorite 89-year-old, Nona Ween. And I love her mission statement. It says, I am turning 89, and I would like to make that possible for more people. What a beautiful idea. She has realized that she was born into privilege. She was born into a system of health care and clean water. And if her birthday could help other people actually have more birthdays, then that's what she wanted for 89. Um, It went beyond birthdays. People started climbing mountains for charity water, trying to raise a dollar a foot. Uh, people went skydiving for charity water Uh, these people made a a sail sailed across the Atlantic Ocean this guy took the $10,000 he'd saved up for an engagement ring buys his wife a well in India instead and proposes to her with that said he wanted to start their marriage off with a radical act of generosity Jesse in Atlanta listen to Nickelback (laughs) for 168 consecutive hours Okay? People felt so bad for Jesse, they gave him $36,000 of donations. Okay? I mean, we would never have these ideas. Like, the creativity of people was amazing. This little girl was four years old, started painting for Charity Water, raised over $5,000. Riley ate rice and beans for an entire month. Her mom sends us in this photo with just a bunch of lines drawn on paper. And we're like, oh, what's that? Mom says, well, Riley went on your website, saw that 4,500 kids die every day of bad water. And Riley asked her mom for pen and paper so that she could write 4,500 lines and feel how big that number was. A little girl named uh, Maddie did 12 lemonade stands up in Vancouver. At her last lemonade stand, she convinced a local band to perform on the sidewalk so she could attract buyers sold over $5,600 of lemonade. And then there was an amazing story, and to save time, uh, I I won't play the video tonight, but there was an amazing little girl uh, at a church in Seattle that heard me speak, and after the service, she donated her birthday, and she raised $220, but she wanted to raise $300. And she was really bummed. She told her mom, like, I'll try harder next year. She felt like she let people down. And right after her birthday, she was killed in a car crash. There was a 20-car crash, and she was the only fatality. And the family reopened her birthday campaign, and the story of this 9-year-old girl started to spread through the church community, and then through the Seattle community. Then the New York Times got a hold of it. Then the Today Show and CBS This Morning. And then it started traveling into Europe. And then it started traveling to Africa. People in Africa started donating $9 in Rachel's honor. And she went from $220 to $1.3 million. Over 37,000 strangers, 37,000 strangers gave. And um, I've got a video that's five minutes that that I won't play. But it's um, we got to take her mom and her grandparents on the one-year anniversary of her death to Africa to meet so many of the people that got clean water because of Rachel. And what's cool, just as you think of you know what comes from you know the, the purity of one idea. Um, we looked at it a few late years later, and we looked at what the 37,000 donors that had given to her campaign had done afterwards. And so many of them donated their birthdays following her lead. They raised another $2 million. So the impact of this girl is now over $3.5 million. She's helped over 100,000 people get clean water. And her goal was 10, was to help 10 people. So what we realized was this was really, uh, this was it wasn't our story. You know, this was, the, this was the story of our community. It was the story of all these amazing people, our local partners, our beneficiaries. And we had to make sure that we got out of the way. You know, we never kind of positioned ourselves as the hero or, you know, we were the guide and we were just trying to invite people to be a part of the movement and then try to celebrate the good that was happening through this. So we focused on radical transparency and we started putting our drilling rigs uh, up online so people could see where they were. Uh, We gave our drilling rigs Twitter accounts so they would actually tweet their location um, just to to try and move transparency forward Uh, as we, as, as, as we, um, took our work up to 29 different countries, we started putting our wells online. So we started connecting them to the internet, thanks to a $5 million grant from Google. So we now have connected wells um, in the middle of Ethiopia. So we know when they break and the sensors alert local technicians who can go and bring them back online, making sure water's flowing. So in this new environment now, we're able to tell Rachel's family not only the photos and the GPS and the pictures of her wells, but we can see six years after her death how much water is flowing every single day, how much clean water is coming out, the lasting legacy, the lasting impact. Just to give you an example, now that we have sensors on them, an average well is doing a million liters a year. So imagine, that's two million Poland spring bottles. You know, think of what we would pay for that at the Wawa, the 7-Eleven. We'd pay two million dollars a year for it. So the impact is, is amazing. Um, in 13 years, uh, this thing has really grown. You know, we've now had over a million people say yes to clean water, say yes to joining Charity Water Around, they have given over $400 million. So we're coming up on half a billion dollars thanks to the generosity of a million people. Um, That has allowed us to, this week, break through 10 million people served. We're at 9.9 million. We just cut the check. So it's 10 million people. If I'm really honest, I thought it would be a lot more. I thought we would be farther along than this. Um, But... It's a lot of people across a lot of countries. We employ over 1,500 locals today. Uh, there are dozens of drilling rigs, uh, many that Charity Water has put into the field now. Um, so we've got 100 people in New York, but over 1,500 around the world. Um, and as we look ahead, 10 million, you know, it's a lot of stadiums full of people. It's six times the population of Philadelphia. I'm sure you've all been to Eagles games. It would fill up that stadium 144 times. So imagine, like, the next time you're at a game... The volume, the sold-out Lincoln, 144 times. It's about 500 Madison Square Gardens for me in New York. That's great, but you put that against the people that still need clean water. And it is 166th of the work that needs to be done. About 1.5%. So... It's something, it's a great start, it's a great impact. It certainly makes a difference for the 10 million people, but we really believe that the best is yet to come. And you know, there's so much more energy about this issue. More and more people are talking, more and more people are joining, and look, we won't stop. I mean, we believe uh, that we can get this done in our lifetime. Um, we're seeing progress made. This is, uh, the number is going down and down and down, not up, which is really great. Um, I want to end with uh, just one story and then a couple thoughts. So John Bosco, uh, one of our first people that we got to serve, and this is what it's all about for me, is taking a kid and his family from disgusting pond and river water, you know, unthinkable water, and then because of the generosity of people a world away, that really don't have to respond, that don't have to do anything, but are moved and said, wow, you know, my resources can stop this little boy from drinking bad water. That allows drilling rigs, in this case, to head towards his village and local Rwandans to jump out. Uh, And imagine, like, being that little boy, watching your own people, like hydrogeologists, jump out and look for water underneath the village and find it and start building a well. And less than a week later, there's clean water coming out of the ground in the center of the village. And what was fun about this was we got to go back eight years later. So when we first met John Bosco, he was a cute kid. Eight years later, uh, he was all grown up. And in that time, he'd gotten married and had his own daughter, Jean-Marie. And we realized that this was about generational change. She would not have to drink from the same swamp of her father and her mother, which was also why the sustainability of these projects was so important to us. So for us, this is what it's about. It is about the before and after. It's about 10 million people just like that little girl that are impacted because people respond to the issue. So um, really two easy ways to to help if you're wondering, you know, how you might be able to to get involved with this. I know so many of you already have. I just heard about a guy named Clay who did this huge bike ride, tried to raise 4,000, wound up crushing his goal. I know a bunch of other people uh, in this community have run fundraising campaigns and donated birthdays. Um, two simple ways to help. The first is just, um, you can grab a copy of the book if you don't have it. I gave away the whole advance, uh, all the proceeds. I don't make a penny from it. Um, it's just a great way to help the organization. I spent two years writing about the story. And uh, it was a surreal experience, as, uh, as your pastor said, you know, waking up on launch day and, you know, putting it out in the world and seeing Bill Gates tweeting about it to 50 million people saying to go buy it, and the former mayor of New York, Mike Bloomberg, and uh, Richard Branson, and all these amazing entrepreneurs getting behind the project, which does have a lot of faith in it. Uh, And it was just cool. So it wound up debuting on the New York Times uh, bestseller list. It was number two uh, on the Los Angeles Times. It wound up just doing so much better than we thought it would, and just being embraced by people who who took this on and cared. So you can get it if you're interested. It's a great way to just um, to share it with others as well. I think I'm going to be at the back signing in for anybody that that cares. Um, The second is to join the spring, and this is new for us. It's the best way that we really think people can help. Think of the spring as Spotify or Netflix for clean water. We just wanted to get a bunch of people in the same way that they're used to paying HBO or Dropbox or Netflix or Spotify every month to donate to clean water where we'd promised that 100% would go, um, they would see their impact every month. And for us, it only cost $30 to get one person clean water. And we said, we know there's a lot of people that could do that every month. We know there's kids that could do less. We have people that write us in their late 90s on their pension, giving $10 a month. We have small businesses giving 100 a month and 500 a month and 1,000 a month. It was really the act of could we build a community that wouldn't just drive by the issue, that wouldn't drop $100 once and then never come back and never think about it, but could we build a community of loyal givers? So we we launched the spring, it started spreading. We said we'll share stories of impact, we'll show people where their monthly donations are going. Um, It quickly grew to 110 countries now represented in this community. And it's a great way to plug in with us for for really whatever you might have and whatever way that you might um, be able to give. Um, and we actually set up a dedicated link just for this community. Um, so I'm going to give you a second. If you want to just take a picture of it later, you can check it out. There's a video with a little more. Um, but we would be able to track the impact of Calvary Chapel. So you could just go to charitywater.org slash Calvary Chapel, learn more about the spring. I'm a member. My wife is a member. Our staff are members. We have people in Africa that are members. Um, and again, it's it's just a simple proposition. All the money goes uh, to get clean water, and you can see exactly how it is. And if you have Apple Pay, we will bring you into the community in about three seconds. You just have to just touch your little thumb on the button. It's pretty cool. Um, I'll leave you just with two final thoughts. Um, you know, the first is, is this. I really believe God can redeem anything and anyone. So if you met this guy, right, this guy does not get invited to Calvary. I mean, maybe you would sit me out there in the rain alone, and you'd all come in here. Like, I was so far from speaking at a church, okay, 14 years ago in this state. And, you know, I really believe by turning my life back over to God, by obeying, I really believe that was important. Um, I have been, I mean, I've been so blessed, I can tell you. I have a beautiful wife that I worked with for nine years. I have two beautiful kids. That's my son Jackson, who starts kindergarten tomorrow morning. So I'm going to drive back to New York City, I think, tonight, so I can uh, take him there. That's my daughter Emma, whose birthday is Saturday on my birthday and Charity Water's birthday. So I share my, my daughter's birthday. And, and really, y'all, this is what I get to do for a living. I mean, I get to do this in front of 15,000 people at tech conferences and in front of church communities. And uh, it, it is, I get to, to spread a message of generosity and compassion and clean water and know that every time you know, the story is told, more and more people get helped. Um, my favorite verse is, is, from, uh, is an obscure passage from Joel, um, I love this because there's worms in it. And whoever gets to talk about worms, okay? It says, I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten, the canker worm, the caterpillar, and the palmer worm. There is nothing grosser in the Bible than a canker worm. I mean, I, I had to research these things, and they're very ugly. Um, you get the sense that what he's describing is like a barren area where all the locusts and the worms came through. I, I googled locust horde and got this picture. And this is really what my life felt like. And I think... You know, there's so many people that might believe that the mistakes of their past will define their future or, oh my gosh, I could never be forgiven. I've, I've screwed up so badly. Maybe you guys have kids that are away from God. I was away from God for 10 years. Uh, my parents just prayed and prayed and prayed. They had little old ladies locked in prayer closets wearing holes in the carpet with their knees. And then one day, you know, I came back and, you know, was able to just walk away from it. And it's like everything was restored to me in a moment. And then all of these things, the guest list, I mean, clubs started building wells. It was the most incredible thing. Um, the next part of the verse says, I will, you'll have plenty to eat until you're full, uh, and you'll praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. I absolutely feel that. And I think, you know, hopefully I'm, I can continue to be a living testimony of God's grace. And... Uh, You know, what I was trying to say through the book is if you think that you might have messed up in the past, unless you killed someone, you probably weren't as bad as me. And I really believe that anyone can turn their life around and um, there is grace and there's... God is always looking to redeem things that feel uh, irredeemable. And I've just seen that time and time and time again. And if I had more time with you guys, I would tell you about miracles and crazy, crazy things that have happened uh, over the years. Um, the second is just my favorite quote, which somebody sent me uh, as I passed a bodega. Maybe I'll just have you guys click it because it's my second to last slide. It's not working for me. Um, this quote, I love it. Someone, uh, It's from an old rabbinic text and it says, do not be afraid of work that has no end. And I love that. That's how I think about our work. Uh, if, you're, if your work is really, if you're asking yourself the question, how do I use my resources, my money, my talent, my time, to end the needless suffering that I see around me? How do I benefit others here in my local community and the global community and it's a, it's a life of selflessness. If you're saying, how can I be a blessing to others? How can I give? Um, this is really a never-ending work. See, when we see a day and everybody on earth has clean water, we're not just going to drop the mic and, like, go work at a bank. I have nothing against people that work at a bank. But, like, we would take everything we've learned and we would take our community and focus them on another problem. Right? Maybe it would be hunger. Maybe it would be a justice issue. So this idea of, like, this used to scare me. Now I just, I lean into it. I love the idea of this kind of endless pursuit. And then one day you look around and you say, oh, wow, 10 million people have clean water. And maybe one day we get to look back and say, wow, 50 million people. Wow, 100 million people got clean water. Wow, actually, everybody has clean water, thanks to all the people that have contributed. What can we do next together? So I'll leave you those thoughts. Um, I'll put up the URL. You can learn more here. Thanks for inviting me into your community. Thanks for everything you've done. Thanks for letting me go along.